So this evening is the Uposatha, reaffirming our commitment to our discipline, So I would like to conceive of this day as where everything is, we make our confessions of offenses and things like this too. And then this sense of, this can be just perfunctory kind of custom, or just learn to let go of everything. When every fortnight, party uh, mocha recitation, or taking precepts, things like this. So you're not carrying this sense of uh, guilt or doubt or whatever creations of your mind that you can. Uh, we can, you know, I've known people who worry about offenses they made even before they were monks or nuns. They told a lie when they were five years old and they're still suffering at 60. <laughs> so I mean, <laughs> this is how we can create a hell realm for ourselves, even if we are very good and our intentions are good. And even if we have committed uh, crimes or done things, uh, unskillful acts in the past, we think that there's a memory in the present, the sense of a self, it reaffirms the sense of a sakyaditi, the self-view, I am somebody who did something bad in the past and uh, therefore that, that whole sense of a self is reaffirmed through this clinging to worry and guilt and um, which we can carry through to, to the end of our lives. And what good does it do? It just makes life uh, more and more depressing and miserable. So this is where the skillful use of the convention, the confession, is say, what is the, you know, we have views about confession if you've been brought up in the Roman Catholic Church or High Church Anglicans. Uh, I used to go to confession as a child and uh, every month and I'd make a list of all the sins. And every night before I went to bed, I'd write down if I'd told a lie or done, did something and so then I'd have to go to the priest every month and, and confess this. I kept a record, you know, had a list of sins that I, <laughs> that possible to commit. And so it did give me a sense of, you know, a strong sense of guilt and shame, which can be, you know, it, you know, it did give me, it had its good time, but also it does create this, it reinforces this illusion of I am my actions, I am a good or bad person. And uh, then if, then we can worry and fret and uh, create endless doubts and anxieties about possibilities. How many of you worry about uh, the discipline or the moral precepts or the vinay, endlessly worry that you might have uh, done something not quite right uh, or something uh, you said something that uh, was wrong speech or and on and on like this one can make this kind of life into a, a, a terrible burden of guilt and doubt so this is where you know I encourage you to reflect on what are you here for you know what is the point of this life if it's just increasing the burden of your life it's making you feel more unworthy and more guilty, uh, more kind of sense of you're not, not good enough, you're 
unworthy person. That's not what it's meant for. We're not here, the Buddha didn't, didn't establish Sangha to reinforce the illusions of a self. So that's why I emphasize it, the first fetter, because this is one of, if you really have a breakthrough and see what that really is, the sakyaditi, or the ego, or the sense of a separate self. And how do you create that sense of your separateness, of your, of being a separate person, a personality, a self? And it's all through attachment to perception, isn't it? Sanya. We have memories, we remember, we have identities, we have national identities, ethnic identities, gender identities, sexual identities, uh, age identities. Um, you know, we, we, we have views about how we look, whether we're attractive or unattractive or good or bad, right or wrong. So this is, uh, this is created through attachment to conditioning, through perception. or sanya khanda, put it in that heap, or that khanda is a sanya khanda. So I always found that quite helpful to, to, you know, because I certainly, if you had the background I did where you, every night you, you uh, examined your life to see how many sins you committed, that does have an effect on on how you feel about yourself and the world around you. Because uh, also in a society where we emphasize, you know, the, a strong um, moral uh, righteousness where we should be all kinds of things. We should be honorable and good and responsible and kind and love our parents and be a good student and obey the teacher and and uh, we shouldn't tell lies and we should forgive and, and we shouldn't get angry and we shouldn't be jealous or envious. We should be grateful. And so this, uh, this uh, society, at least uh, speaking for myself, the American uh, cultural background is based on the ideals of how things should be. And so then the then you, you know, I would compare myself to the way I feel right now. Say, and I'm, maybe I'm, I'm angry or upset or jealous or frightened or whatever, and then I feel, uh, I see this as, as my problem, my difficulty, my something wrong, something inadequate in myself. So, what am I doing then? It's just reinforcing this basic delusion called Sakya Ditti. And so that's why I want to encourage this examination of Sakya Ditti, the, or you can call it the ego um, or personality view, self view. And, but it always is attachment to memory, isn't it? To some uh, of the past of views, opinions, values, a sense of worthiness or unworthiness of your talent or lack of it, your, whether you're lovable or not. And these are, of course, this, it creates this sense of a separate person, personality, self. And when we, we live in a society where this is very, you know, this is the way things are. We, we live in a society that's based on the illusion of a self. I'm not criticizing that, just pointing to it. So in uh, investigating Dhamma, it's encouraging you to really investigate what self is. I'm not trying to get rid of self or memories or perceptions. I'm not, it's not an annihilationist attack on conditioned phenomena that I'm interested in, but in understanding it. Now this is where we, we really uh, look at the way things are, being a human being, uh, having a human body with uh, senses, being in a sense realm, uh, 
you know, with, which is always subject to change. Uh, it's always changing, you know, it's day or night, it's hot or cold, uh, seasons change and <clears throat> we get older and we have, we feel healthy or sick, we uh, experience all kinds of change. And we relate to this change always in, as something uh, that we'd like to create a kind of permanent paradise, a place where I can feel safe, secure, accepted, loved, happy forevermore. So and when, one, when one doesn't understand Sakya Ditti, then one is always looking for some place or someone else or something uh, to, to give this sense of a permanent security and safety and being loved and accepted. And inevitably we're disappointed because that's just not the way things are. Conditions are forever changing. We're subject to the change that we don't have that much control over. So getting old is part of life experience or having physical pain or loss of loved ones, disappointments, despair, guilt, remorse, uh, all, the, all the emotion, jealousy and fear, these are, there's nothing wrong or shouldn't have these emotions, but what the Buddha is encouraging us to do is to see them, to know them, to study them, investigate. So this word investigate is quite, a, you know, this is, this is the real power of uh, Buddha Dhamma. We're encouraged to investigate it, not to just grasp Buddhist ideas and take Buddhist positions on life, but investigate the reality that we're experiencing through the bodies we have, through the personalities that manifest, through emotional habits, tendencies, and whatever, uh, whatever they might be in the present. We are relating to them is, is understanding, knowing, rather than judging, criticizing, controlling, uh, annihilating. So, then, then in terms of the monastic convention, see it as a tool for developing awareness. It's not here to make you feel, uh, to reinforce Sakyaditi, even though we, we can easily do that. We can create a sense of our self in regards to our seniority or position or, you know, whether we're an Ajahn or not, or Anagarika or layperson, we can create a sense of separateness and, uh, and, and suffer accordingly to, to the self we create through the convention. You know, so that's, that's how we're conditioned, culturally conditioned to do this. But what I'm encouraging you to do is to investigate, you know, how we do attach to position, to views and opinions. Uh, in, in the, using the very conventions which are, you know, if used properly, are trying to help us see through that attachment. So it's not in becoming a monk or a nun or becoming even a Buddhist. We're not trying to, to become Buddhists, but to, you know, this sense of awareness of Dhamma, the truth of the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. So you hear this all the time, Sape Sankaranicha, all conditions are impermanent. But that's not just an intellectual position we're taking. I've heard many people, and I've done it myself, you know, this quote, everything is impermanent, is because, you know, that's, that's the Buddhist line. All, everything's impermanent. But that can be another just attachment, an opinion. Or, how to take that as a reflection, and investigate. Conditions, what do we mean by conditions? What do we mean by sankara? A Pali word, we translate it as conditions, but to some people the word, English word conditions doesn't mean very much. Uh, 
I mean, we all have, many of you, your first language is not English. So you have, you've learned English as a second language. Or <clears throat> those of us who, who, whose native tongue is English, we still have various assumptions we make through uh, uh, the way we've learned this language, our own tongue. So, I mean, it's, it's not, don't trust the, the, your own kind of way you, in, you use the language, but the language itself is to be reflected upon, not to be attached to. So we're not trying to, if we're trying to become Buddhists or Theravadan Buddhists or something, then we attach to, to those perceptions. I'm a Theravadan Buddhist. <clears throat> I'm not a um, Tibetan. I'm not a Zen Buddhist. I'm Theravadan. We're the uh, pure original form. And then what, that could be Sakyaditi, couldn't it? We're not one of these... Uh, you know, the Buddha didn't establish Mahayana Buddhism. He taught Theravada. No, he didn't teach. <laughs> but we can, form, we can form strong attachments to the party lines of our convention, to the perceptions of our convention, the way the tradition promotes it. So in Thailand, for example, Mahayana Buddhism they don't usually know very much about it, but it's suspect, you know, it's kind of seen as not quite as good as Theravada. That can be uh, a cultural perception, isn't it? Whether it's superior or inferior or whatever, it, we don't need to figure that one out. What, the direct path is just by examining uh, these words. What do we mean, you know? what is? What is Mahayana and Theravada? These are words that arise and cease in consciousness. Now, how to use the convention? So whether, you know, because I've particularly chosen to, to practice in the Theravadic system, You know, it's a conscious choice. I was not, it was not forced on me. And I'm not culturally Theravadan. So it was a, an intentional, deliberate choice. Not because I thought it was superior to anything else, but because it was available. So it is not like a judgment. I was, and my actual interest in Buddhism started with uh, Zen Buddhism. As, a, as we picked it up and interpreted uh, Japanese Zen Buddhism on the West Coast of the United States, which could be open to all kinds of criticism. <laughs> I mean, the American version of Japanese Zen is not really like the Japanese Zen. But it's because it's, you know, what, how we use these conventions is influenced by our own cultural uh, background, how we interpret discipline, morality, meditation. So in, when I became interested in Buddhism, it's through the Zen Buddhism that, I, uh, Zen, that was available on the uh, West Coast in the United States back in the 50s, 1950s. And that was quite, you know, it had its own American style to it. And, they uh, quite liked it, actually. So it's not, not, a, not to say there's anything wrong with it. But then finding myself in Southeast Asia, uh, in Malaysia and then Thailand, then this was what was available. Now, as I picked up Japanese Zen Buddhism in the United States, uh, there were certain feelings. I remember Aldous Huxley, people like that, used to criticize as they... they uh, Theravada Buddhism, all they do is keep rules, believe in more, uh, moral precepts, and they don't, you know, he put it down, dismissed it as a kind of just uh, attachment to, to moral discipline, which sounded pretty dismal to me. You know, it wasn't inspiring uh, to think of all you do is, you know, attach to disciplinary precepts. It's the last thing an American wants to do if he's uh, on the west coast of the United States. <laughs> and so uh, this is uh, 
This is not, you know, a very inspiring way to describe it. <coughs> and then living in Southeast Asia, had a chance to visit Thailand, Cambodia, and uh, something in me was inspired by what I saw, just the, the temples, the monks, the, the, the society. So I b investigated it and eventually uh, trained in Thailand. Then it was easy because we were trained with a very good teacher to attach to that. Our teacher is better than yours. Or my teacher. <laughs> or to, we are Vinaya, our discipline. We're superior to the other monks because we, we are more strict with the Vinaya, so we're better than they are. Now that, that kind of thinking, and one can create a sense, uh, a tedious sense of superiority through being more moral than somebody else, more disciplined, holier than thou. So uh, this is, you know, through attaching to very good things. Not, there's nothing wrong with being strict. But if, if the Sakya Ditti is the, is the basis of it, it does not, it's not liberating just to be strict with morality and, uh, and then to form a sense of your own worth according to how many rules you keep perfectly. Because it's all coming out of ignorance, sakyaditi, and attachment. And so this is where the Buddha was, was you know, we're here, uh, the, the Buddha's teaching, first sermon, was about suffering, its causes, cessation, and path, the Four Noble Truths. So then, being holier than somebody else, feeling better or purer or than somebody else, is that a peaceful, desirable mental state to cultivate? And this is how I'd examine my own motives, like feeling that I'm a better monk than somebody else. Now looking at that, you know, I would, you know, I, I'd observe this sense of feeling superior or purer than, or looking down on another monk who I thought was uh, not a very good monk. Are these mental states that I want to perpetuate in my life? And so this is where you reflect, you observe, is this peaceful to create this sense of I'm better than you, I'm pure, or I'm not as good. Or you meet some monk who's, who's more strict with the rules than I am, and then I'd feel intimidated and not quite as good as they are. So this is where this sakya ditti is to be investigated. It's all about attachment to conditions, to perceptions. The, we can create it just by the way we look, how we see ourselves, and, and uh, you know, the color of our skin, or our height, or our size, whether we're fat or thin young or old, we, we form a sense of ourself according to uh, this perception of I am the body. Now, in reflecting on the way it is, it's a ref when I use this word reflecting and investigating, it's, it's, it's non-judgmental. It's not talking about which is the best or that I've got to become better, or I've got to be more strict, or I've got to be more disciplined, or I've got to get rid of my faults and my bad tendencies, because that's still sakyaditi, the sense of a separate self. I'm somebody who needs to uh, practice in order to become uh, some, somebody better in the future. That's sakyaditi. We can be sucked in anything. I'm, I'm a better meditator than you are. Or I'm a sotapanna or an arahant. Or I'm not. I'm not a sotapanna. I'm not an arahant. I'm not as good as you. So whether it's I am better or worse or superior or inferior, th those are qualities in this dualistic realm of thinking. Like conditioned phenomena has qualities. 
And that there's, you know, so conditioned phenomena is changing. So you have day and night, black and white, male and female. You have good and bad, right and wrong, heaven and hell. These are the, this is just the way the conditioned phenomena operate. It's all about quality and quantity and best and better or worst, the worst. So this is, this is the thinking process. Now, examining, looking at thoughts, not trying to stop thinking because you, you, you know, get rid of it, but observe the thinking process. So this is why I, I kind of emphasize the, the importance of being the observer of thinking rather than the, the thinker. And of course, there's a famous Rodin sculpture, The Thinker, you know, sitting at the gate of hell like this uh, with a headache in utter despair. Because thinking will take you to despair. I guarantee it. If you think about yourself too much, you're, you're going to become depressed and despairing. You know, especially if you tend to be critical because the, we tend to exaggerate the flaws, our weaknesses. I mean, we all have different tendencies and these are varying degrees, but, uh, you know, from speaking for myself, I would always exaggerate uh, the flaw or the weakness or the fault and, and forget about the good things. So, you know, I, I, I thought I was just being honest. You know, then, well, I'm honest, I've got all these problems, I'm, and, and I'm being straight with you, I'll tell you what's wrong with me, fess up now, and, and I'll tell you all, all about how, you know, inadequate, unworthy I am. And, and we think that we can even assume that's a kind of being truthful and straight with everybody. But then also, you know, when, when you look at yourself, why are you here? Because, uh, you know, why, why, do you, why would you want to live in a place like this? Live within, a, uh, uh, within the precepts, they limit and bind you to, to the limitations of a convention. You don't have to do this, you know, you can, you know, there's no, you're not holding a gun to your head, it's your choice. But also it's because of, you know, I see it's because of your own goodness. There's some aspiration, there's a love of truth, uh, a longing for uh, freedom. Um, you know, we want to be good, we want to be truthful and honest and kind and compassionate. Well, these are good qualities, even if they are sakyaditi. They're still qualities. But these, these good qualities, we can call them baramis or baramitas, they bring us to, to places like this or to make our commitment to uh, some religious convention. Not because, you know, we're not here because we're, we're guilt-ridden, frightened of going to hell. At least I hope that's not what you're motives for being here are. I certainly not, don't want to support that view. But, you know, really be honest with yourself and you're here for enlightenment, for seeing the truth. So whether you always feel that way or not, it's not the issue. This is, this is uh, just take this for granted. This is my intention, and speaking for myself, my intention for living this life is for liberation, freedom, from ignorance and to be a benefit to all sentient beings. Sometimes we think, well, it's just a selfish aspect. You're just thinking of yourself. But that's not it, is it? I'm, I'm looking at the self. It's not for me to become liberated as, a, you know, I'm going to be liberated. I don't care about you. I mean, I can certainly feel like that sometimes, but that's not, <laughs> that's not a... A, a mental state that I wish to cultivate. So, and then in, in reflecting and in examining, investigating Dhamma, the Buddha's teaching is, is an incredibly skillful 
tool. Uh, it is a convention, though, recognize it. It's not for attachment. It's not to reinforce delusion or sakyaditi. But it's here for awakening, for helping. It's a skillful means. And how we use it, then it's up to, you know, one can't make somebody use it. Uh, you know, you can just keep pointing or encouraging people. Now this takes a measure of trust in yourself. Now on a Sakyaditi level, you may not trust yourself very much. We may, because, you know, if you're a very critical person, you tend to see, you know, you're one's devoted so much energy in one's life to dwelling on one's inadequacies or flaws and and so you 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 know you see yourself through through the negative perceptions and that's why you know really you know you know to to examine this tendency to attach to to your own negative states the sense of of not being good enough, or what's wrong, or the fault, or whatever. It's not to get rid of it, but to see it. That which is aware of this sense of me and mine as a separate person is not a person. It is consciousness, though. Consciousness where the personality arises and ceases. So like with awareness, within the limitations of being human, human individual, we all have to experience life from this position of within the body uh, that's here as it is, uh, uh, the karma we have, the way we tend to, our emotional habits or perceptions, sense of ourself, cultural background, the thinking habits. But notice that the refuge is in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So this Buddha or Bhutto, this mantra, is a reminder to be this awareness. So in Bhutto, knowing Dhammo, knowing the Dhamma, the Buddha knows Dhamma. It's not me knowing all about Dhamma anymore. It's not me being a, a scholar on Abhidhamma or on Mahayana or on Sarvastavada or on Vajrayana or on Pali tradition. It's not about me having learned all about something, but it's much more direct than that. Because I could be a scholar and still be filled with Sakyaditi, you know, views and opinions and arguments about uh, what this means and that means. If you go to academic conferences on Buddhism, that's what they're all about, usually. But to know Dhamma isn't, isn't about knowing all about the Dhamma according to Pali Canon, but using the Pali Canon for awareness. So in this, the reason why I emphasize Four Noble Truths, Ten Fetters, Four Stages, Dependent Origination, now these are the kind of fundamental teachings. These are the, this is all you really need for insight, for enlightenment, for understanding. Now I don't expect you to believe me, but uh, this is more of an encouragement rather than a doctrinal position I'm taking. Man uh, figured out, you know, like, like the first noble truth, there is this suffering or dukkha. Now that is a statement that is so uh, banal, isn't it? If what, so what? There is suffering and, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, in terms of cultural conditioning, it doesn't, it doesn't inspire. It's a statement of something that is, that we all know anyway, there is suffering. But we, we may not really understand suffering. We, we blame our suffering on others. 
you know, we say, I'm suffering because I, uh, my mother didn't uh, nurse me. My mother, she fed me coffee rather than milk. That's why I'm addicted. <laughs> Seattle being the coffee capital of the United States, what would you expect? <laughs> I mean, then I'm blaming her. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I didn't have the chances you did or somebody else. And, and we, we can justify, you know, some of us, some people, some of you have had uh, unfortunate experiences in life and, and uh, lack of opportunities. I'm not denying the suffering of the world as it affects us. But when it comes to the first noble truth, it's not about that. It's about... Uh, are the suffering I create in my consciousness around the, the in the present moment. Now, the sense of myself, Sakyaditi, when I attach and operate through Sakyaditi, I feel separate, I feel critical, I feel incomplete, I, I get, you know, it's just the, the way of attaching to to this sense of a separate self. Now, I've had over 40 years of examining this Sakyaditi. And whenever I attach to Sakyaditi, I have the same feeling. It's dukkha. I'm an old man now. I'm, you know, whatever. You know, I don't, I know better now. But you know, say 40 years ago, I didn't. It was just the habitual way of, of seeing myself in life comparing myself to others, you know, brought up in a very competitive society where you're, you know, your sense of your self-worth is always in comparison to somebody else. So in, in this, uh, observing this, uh, when I create myself as a separate person, then I feel this sense of alienation, Every time. Now, because I know this and have examined Sakyaditi, I realize it's pointless to attach to this. You know, it's, it's not, there's no point, there's no need to, to reinforce this delusion. Not because I, I, I you know, I'm against uh, the ego. It's not me as somebody who wants to get rid of my ego, because that's Sakyaditi again. There's no way you can, you can get rid of Sakyaditi by uh, wanting to get rid of it. But through understanding it, knowing it, Sakyaditi is like this. Attachment to the self-view is like this. The result of attachment to the self-view is like this. And this is what I call the First Noble Truth. There is this suffering this sense of separateness, of loneliness, of alienation, of um, tendencies to maybe feel sorry for myself or blame others for my uh, feeling of um, inadequacy or unhappiness. So through examining and investigating, you don't, I don't do that. It's a, it's, you know, there's no reason to do it, no good reason to operate from the self-view. But not that I don't have a self. It still comes, you know. There's still the, the vipaka kama, of, you know, being born in, in this form and with the background cultural influence and experiences and memories of a lifetime. It still affects the present moment, but the difference lies is knowing them. You're seeing them in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of good, bad, right, and wrong, me and my. Now when we say the, the enlightened mind is, you know, actually you're all enlightened anyway. Then there's nothing you know, there's not, you don't need to try to become enlightened because it's your true nature. But what, you know, the, what blinds us is our attachment to 
conditioned phenomena. So if I'm holding some conditioned phenomena all the time and gazing, obsessed, absorbing into conditioned phenomena, then because the conditioned phenomena is like this, it changes. You can't sustain it. It's not, you can't find security in it. Uh, it's subject to all kinds of other influences. And so it's very unstable. So you feel insecure and, and frightened and, and so forth because of you know, this attachment to condition out of ignorance. So when you, you see, when you find that there's a way out of that, there is the unborn, unconditioned. And then that's stated very clearly. It's through awareness, mindfulness, that we recognize or realize the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unformed. Now notice this word recognize, realize. This is reality. The unborn is real. The unconditioned. Now when you try to think about the unconditioned, my mind, I mean I can't, you know, the thinking mind stops. Or I go into speculation. Just like, you know, trying to describe God or people ask, is there a God or isn't there a God or what? And then you, you know, then you might, you know, you're, you're talking about something, trying to describe uh, the unborn, uncreated, which you, and when the more you try to create the uncreated, the more delusion you create. You know, so notice in the, in the, in this system the Buddha called the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. It's not, you can't image it, you can't make a picture of the unborn. And it usually, if you do, it's usually nothing, you know, like a blank. It doesn't seem like anything in terms of quality. It has no quality to it. It's not beautiful or ugly or anything like this. It's not, you know, blissful, floating up in the sky, leaving all the ugliness behind. It's not heaven, but it is reality. And it's always here and now and recognizable. It's real and recognizable. So that recognition of it is through investigating, uh, seeing through you know, seeing through the, seeing the causes of suffering and the end of suffering through investigating, through putting into practice. So you actually, you know, you, you know for yourself. You're not just t uh, uh, clinging to what I say or Buddhist ideas. Because this you've got to do for yourself. You, you, you know, it's something that you, you, you know, you need to, to, to know this through insight, not through grasping somebody else's words, no matter how profound or wise those words might be. So you can see if you attack the idea, I've got to become enlightened in the future by practicing uh, now in order to get rid of my defilements. What does that sound like when you, when you listen to yourself thinking like that? I've got a lot of defilements. Uh, you know, I've got all this uh, anger and uh, fear and uh, I've got all this, you know, still get jealous and uh, I've got to get rid of these defilements uh, in order to become enlightened in the future. Now that is Sakyaditi. So by attaching to Sakyaditi, are you going to get anywhere with it? If you just keep operating from this basic delusion of I'm unenlightened, needing to practice in order to become, you, you'll spend your, maybe your whole life practicing what you think is Buddhist meditation with being quite disappointed with it. Because the basic delusion is still your modus operandi, you're operating from delusion. And so this is where the, you know, to, to just wake up 
wake up. Uh, mindfulness, these words emphasize over and over, is not about becoming. You don't, you, you can't become mindful. You think, I've got to be more mindful. I've got to practice mindfulness. It's still Sakya Ditti. Anything with that sense of I have to, I must, I should, I mustn't, I shouldn't, and all that, that is the Sakya Ditti form. But you can hear yourself thinking that. And that's why not listening to Sakya Ditti, don't be critical of it. It is in no matter what forms it takes whether it's conceit or humility or arrogance or uh, blame or self-pity or anger, resentment. Uh, it doesn't matter the quality. If I'm, What I'm encouraging, encouraging you is to be the puto, the knowing of it. It is conditioned phenomena. Sape Sankarani Cha. Sakyaditi, the good category. It's always through attachment to thinking that I create myself. I am Ajahn Sameto. Is, uh, you know, attaching to that. As a convention, I still use it. Nothing wrong. I don't have to say I'm really nobody. I have no self. That's still Sakyaditi, isn't it? But it's but it's, it's in recognizing the thinking process, which is non-thinking, which is pure awareness. So that's why listening to yourself thinking non-critically, you know, which is not easy to do, because there's many thoughts that I don't like, that I can have that I don't like in myself. You know, so there's, the, you know, a tendency to resist them, trying to get rid of them, ignore them, where that tendency to resist is still sakyaditi, isn't it? It's a habit one's acquired of trying to, to get rid of bad thoughts, get rid of uh, critical mind, get rid of um, whatever. It's still desire to get rid of something. Those vipavadana manifest. So you see in the Four Noble Truths, you've got this beautiful uh, expedient means to observe to, and, and to investigate this. So that you, you know, you're internalizing, you're not just grasping uh, the, you know, a, a formula from the tripitaka, but you're actually applying it to experience to suffering, to desire, get to know desire, be the knower of desire. And the cessation, be the, the knower of desire is, arises and ceases when there is desire and when there's no desire. That's discerning. to see what attachment to desire. You know, you can, hold, you can hold to the view, I shouldn't attach to desire. That's still Sakyaditi, isn't it? But desire is like this. You know, so you, what is desire? It's an energy, isn't it? It's just, this is a desire realm. These are desire forms. This body is a desire body. Desire is nourishment. It's sexual desire. It's uh, it's uh, you know it's thirsty and desires to rest when I'm sleepy and, and so desire is is natural to this is a desire realm, wanting not wanting. So our relationship to desire is knowing it. We're not trying to get rid of it, but to know it and and see it so that we, we don't attach to it anymore. We still experience it, but there, it's different when, when I'm just reacting to desire, then I'm lost in, 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 you know, I've just formed habits of fear and resistance and worry, and it increases the sense of, 
of me and mine and separation. But if I know desire, that's Buddha knowing the Dhamma. Desire is condition, phenomena. It's not ultimate reality. Desires arise and cease according to other conditions. As a personality, you might think you're, you, are a desire, you have desire all the time. You, you might see yourself in terms of being someone who's filled with desires, uh, you know, and that's Sakyaditi again, isn't it? It's, 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 you know, the sense of a personality has a kind of permanent quality to it. It seems permanent. I am somebody with a lot of problems. This can be, you know, this perception of myself with somebody that has a lot of problems and a lot of desires. If that arises in the present, then I can assume that, that I'm this way all the time, even when I'm asleep. Even when there's no desire, I don't know it because I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced I'm somebody with a lot of desires. That's a, I've never questioned that or looked into it. But when I do, then I can see that, you know, desires come and go, like clouds in the sky or things change, you know. So and the awareness of desire isn't desire. So you're discerning, you're using, you're developing the wisdom, faculty of wisdom. So you can actually discern desire and know it and attachment to desire. Uh, what happens when I attach to desire? I become that desire. I become like that. And then, but if I am aware of desire, no desire, then there's a discerning awareness that not to attach, non-attachment, not through resisting or denying it, but understanding it, knowing. So consciousness is a knowing. It's a, you know, we're, we're you, you know, we think maybe the universe has no meaning everything, we can go into the annihilationist mode, like everything ceases, it's all going to end anyway. Uh, and, and when we think about, uh, you know, the end of the world and the end of the universe and when did it begin and, and all that, then we're caught in the thinking process. And that's about time, about qualities, about, you know, uh, birth and death, beginning and ending. But awareness then is you begin to recognize and re take refuge in awareness. You're no longer at attaching to conditioned phenomena. And that's the deathless, the unconditioned, unborn. Nibbana, non-self, liberation from suffering. This is recognizable, this is realizable. This is reality. So when I say, you're all enlightened anyway, I don't mean this on a Sakyaditi level. My personality is never going to be enlightened. There's no way my personality will become enlightened, nor yours, no matter how saintly you might be. You're, even saints are not liberated if they're attached to being good and to, to refine states of consciousness. So it's, uh, you know, it's, the Buddha is, is an awakened human individual who sees things, knows the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is. Discerning, so we, you know, there's a wisdom operating. It's not like we know anything. You know, we don't know all about everything and the beginning of the universe and what's going to happen at the end and Armageddon and the end of the world and, and uh, so forth. It's not about time or place or knowing about everything, but it's the omniscience that we 
tune into is through satipanya, through wisdom. And we learn, like, you know, from, you, you learn from the conditions you're experiencing. From, you, we learn from the way we are, the personalities we have, the physical condition we find ourselves in. We learn from our emotional habits. You know, no matter whether they're skillful or unskillful, we're, we're learning, we're no longer uh, identifying them and judging them, but learning. Even anger and selfishness, we can observe it. You know, qualities that we may not like in ourselves, like selfishness, this, uh, you know, I don't want to be a selfish person as an ideal. So on a personal level, you know, as a personal ideal, I don't, I've never, you know, a way to intimidate and make somebody feel guilty is tell them they're being selfish. You just think of yourself. You don't think of the rest of us. And, and parents have oftentimes do that to their children. You're just being selfish. You should. And, you know, and then I, I don't want to be selfish even on a sakyaditi level. But selfish conditions do arise in consciousness. And I can still feel selfish. But the difference lies in the knowing. I, my refuge is in knowing selfishness, not in, in trying to get rid of it. As soon as I try to get rid of selfishness, then I'm back into Sakyaditi again. Judging, uh, struggling, resisting, and then there's alienation, separation, dukkha, first noble truth, there is dukkha, So, just encouraging you to, uh, you know, during, I mean, this is Amravati, is, you know, the whole aim and purpose of this place is for enlightenment. It's the encouragement and opportunity for seeing the truth and investigating and knowing. And it, you know, looking on my life now, it's, it's uh, you know, I really feel incredible gratitude for having such an opportunity, you know, to live this life and to, to actually learn from what, what one needs to learn as a human individual. And so this is, you know, we're not trying to create perfect community or happy, harmonious monks and nuns living, smiling and being sweet to each other. We're here to learn about the nature of sankhara, to, to see, to know, to trust in, in this awareness that we can all recognize and utilize in our lifetime within this limited form of this human form that we have to bear with till it drops dead. So don't despair and, uh, and things change, you know, like communities, conventions, you know, people come and go, people have faith and then lose it and, and, and this is just the way things are. We have, you know, I myself have had great inspiring moments and times of despair and disillusionment. But the important thing, the emphasis has always been on observing rather than, than being caught in, in being inspired or disillusioned. So it takes a strong determination, you know, a determination to really cultivate because a lot of times one doesn't want to. Or one feels, you know, very critical or disillusioned with the conventions or the system or the people or whatever. And then, then of course, you know, we can, you know, get caught in our disappointment or disillusionment. 
But those are the very points where we, you know, you learn the most. When you really, you know, at the, at the bottom and you are willing to look and observe and patiently, you know, begin to, to investigate the attachment to wanting something, not wanting something is like this. So I offer this for your reflection.